All right. Happy Friday, everyone. And we are back with another episode of Learning Tech Talks, where we're continually exploring the landscape of learning tech while cutting through the fluff. And this was down to the wire, I have to say. I my, my intro video, I was producing up until about 30 seconds before we went live. But we made it. We made it and we weren't even late. So, so that's awesome. Today, I'm joined by my friend Ben Eubanks, and he's from Lighthouse Research and Advisory. And we are talking about all things artificial intelligence. And specifically, what does it mean for HR, learning, talent development, uh, that whole space. So if you are joining us live, go ahead, give us a thumbs up, share the post, tag in somebody who has an interest in AI and, and is in the HR space. We'll have a lot of fun uh, today and uh, anybody that would benefit from the conversation. Also, if you can, to get the comments started, go ahead and let us know where you are joining from. Uh, so I am always in Waukesha, Wisconsin, pretty much always. People actually ask me if I ever leave this desk, and I do, believe it or not. Um, how about you, Ben? I never leave this desk. Never. <laughs> Huntsville, Alabama for me. Okay. All right. How's the weather there today? Is it going to be hot? It's probably going to be hot if I had to guess. It's been uh, nice the last couple of days. They were supposed to rain. It's just been instead cloudy. So we've enjoyed a little bit of a respite from the blazing sun. Okay. It's been, it's been scorching here, but it's supposed to cool off a little bit. So I'm looking forward to, Fingers to crossed. that. So hopefully this weekend will be good. I don't think we have any rain. I always have to have the weather conversation at the beginning. It, means it wouldn't be a conversation without it. That's all right. That's all right. <laughs> okay. Now, Everybody can play along with this one. Your question has nothing to do with artificial intelligence. So for those of you who don't know, uh, Ben and I are both fathers of fairly sizable families. You have you have four, right? At last check, yes. At last check, yes. <laughs> okay, so Ben has four. I have five. So I thought a good icebreaker question would have something to do with parents, not necessarily us as parents, but Ben, I'm curious. What is something your parents, mom or dad, I don't care, did, they drove you nuts as a kid that now you find yourself doing. And you said there might be more than one, but you, you can- I'll just pick one of them. I'll just pick one of them. So it's funny because I had three brothers growing up. So you can imagine the kind of chaos that went on back then too. You got along perfectly, I'm sure. Yes, totally. At all times. <laughs> all times. Actually, though, I don't know about you and your kids, but the only time that we got along was when we were supposed to be in bed. That's when we wanted to like talk and chat and be friendly with each other. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Why and not? like after we knew we had some wiggle rooms, there was some leeway when we could do that and just talk and stuff because several of us shared a room at one time. And then you'd hear the thunder, like my dad booming down the hall and you're like, yeah. uh Oh, it's over. Everybody out like you're asleep. This is going to be the end. And, um, so that was one of the things that drove us crazy because we're like, wait, this is, we're actually talking together. We're not fighting with each other. We're, we're getting along. Why do we have to go to bed? <laughs> and so this, this summer, one of the things we let our kids do is make a family bucket list. So something okay. you want to do this summer. And one of the things in that list was stay up till midnight. And I was like, that's a terrible idea. That's the worst parenting decision ever. <laughs> we let them do that two nights ago. They stayed up until 1230 and we put her to bed. Yesterday morning, they were up at 7 a.m., like bright and early, ready to go, ready for the day. I'm like, this is, this is bad. And then last night they would not go to sleep, could not get them to bed, could not, you know, and I'm like, stop talking, stop being friendly with each other. I'm, I'm going to do the like thunder down the hall thing. Yeah. So yeah, that's the thing that's 
Okay. So Ben is thunder down the hall with the kids. It's time yes. to go to bed. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll change my uh, change my skills from AI to thunder down the hall. And we'll <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that would look really cool on LinkedIn. So yes, I need the little little lightning bolts on there. Yeah. There you go. There you go, <laughs> Zeus. Okay. Well, so mine. I actually I have two. One, I because I'm going to go with two because I couldn't pick. So one of them I'll do really quick was. Um, my dad was obsessed with mowing the lawn. He was obsessed mm. with it. Like he couldn't go more than a couple days without having it mowed. And if he did, he went bonkers. And I hated it as a kid because I was the one that had to mow the lawn. So of course he could be <laughs> obsessed with it. Cause like, Hey, the hey, lawn, we need a quarter inch off the side. Right. So now I'm that guy, right? Because I'm like, Oh, the lawn, it just looks terrible. My wife's like, you just cut it. And I'm looking at it going, I can't even look at this thing. Now, I don't have the privilege of just telling my kids to go do it, nor would I think I I may never do that because I enjoy it, but we'll see. But then the other one was, um, I remember when I got my first Super Nintendo, thought it was the coolest thing ever, Super Mario World. I thought it was so ridiculous that my parents wouldn't let me play it 24-7. How rude to stop me from, from getting Yoshi. Pursuing your life's dream. Goodness. Exactly, right? I wanted to beat Super Mario World. Why should I have to go to bed? Why should I have to ever turn it off? Well, anyway, um, I found, I, I made this a while back, and I dug this up and found it for my kid. I have a Raspberry Pi that I turned into a gaming station of all classic games, all the NES, all the SNES. Anyway, I got my son into Super Mario World for SNES. And now he's doing the same thing. And I'm the one that's like, you have to turn it off. You cannot play video <laughs> games all day long. Your brain will turn to jelly. You will, you will never. Look what happened to me, right? <laughs> right. Look at me. Do you want to live this? And so now I am, I am that one that here I swore I'd never be that because it was so rude. But anyway. That is fun. I love it. <laughs> I love it. My wife, my wife's a Donkey Kong fan, not, not Super, not uh, Super Mario Brothers, but I bought her a, a, a mini one a couple of years ago that has 10 or 12 different games on it. And she, she plays it all the time. And we played, okay. we played Super Mario two days ago with the kids. So, okay. Yeah. Well, I got them into the Wii and then, right. I have all these like old video game systems. They all still work. So the kids, they don't know the difference. Yes. So yeah. Okay, cool. Well, anyway, that was a, that was a longer intro than usual, but all good stuff. Um, thanks everybody for, for putting up with that part, but now let's get into this artificial intelligence side of things, because this is, to me, one of the biggest topics I hear talked about frequently, it's also one of the things I see often vastly misunderstood or misapplied. So as the AI expert, Ben, tell me a little bit about when people say, what is AI? How do you explain that? So AI, goodness gracious, we could go in a lot of different directions there. And um, <laughs> the, the research that I've done is the basis for the book that I wrote, Artificial Intelligence for HR. So that's that's where a lot of this is coming from, that, that basis, that research. One of the fun definitions that I love, though, is Stanford's definition. Okay. And they're doing a 100-year study of AI and how it's going to affect us in our working lives and our personal lives, like every aspect of who we are as humans. And their definition is there's not one clear definition of what AI is. <laughs> I love that. Definition is there is no definition. Yes. Okay, everybody's right. coming at it from all these different directions, all these different angles. And basically, if it's something that automates a part of our life and it makes our lives a little, a little bit easier, a little better, then they're like, well, we'll consider that. We'll, we'll lump it in with, with this and, and make it work. The real, the real answer the, to this is, can we teach an algorithm, a piece of software, a, a line of code? Can we teach it to learn something, make recommendations, 
just like a human would. If we can do that and have it automate something and do something similar to how a human did, and we'll talk through some examples in our profession and how they apply today, but that's basically the gist of it. Can we teach it to do something and process information and respond like a human? If so, there's probably a way to put uh, the AI label on that. Okay. Okay. So anything that a person could do that we can get a computer to do could be categorized as artificial intelligence. It's a pretty wide net right now. It, In is the future, a pretty it might be more net. narrowly defined, you know, more specific, but right now it's, it's really broad because again, if you create, so I'll give you an example. One of the things I ran across in the book is this term called the AI effect. Okay. And I was, I was sharing this with you earlier. The AI effect is this term that AI researchers, these brilliant engineers and scientists, as they design these tools, they say, okay, what is artificial intelligence? And someone will give them a goalpost and say, okay, this is what AI is. It has to do this thing. So they'll build a tool that will do that thing. And someone's like, well, that's not really intelligence. That's just advanced statistical modeling, or that's just machine learning. So here's what it is. And they'll keep moving those goalposts out further and further for what AI, the definition of it really is, which is a pain point for them, I'm sure. Um, but also it makes it hard to really define exactly what it is. And I think that's part of what contributes to that. Okay. Okay. So, and we talked a little bit about this before we went live, right? You know, the, the constant moving of the goalpost, which where are you based on some of the research you're seeing? We, we talked about this a little bit, but where does that come from, right? Why do they keep changing, moving the goalpost? Why is that the response? So I saw in some of the comments that you and that people were posting as you were promoting the event and we were promoting us coming up the yeah. live, the live stream here. And some of the comments from people were like, well, you know, I'm, I'm worried about that a little bit. Or someone said earlier, like, I'm looking for something hopeful in here because we keep <laughs> hearing about AI is coming for us all. It's going to, we're all be, be unemployed yeah. by the year 2030 or whatever the year, you know, whatever it is now, the headline. And I think that's part of it. We're worried about our own security. And if I told you that right now there's a there's a piece of software that can do 40% of your job, that's threatening, that's scary, and that's rightfully so. That is that scares us. And so we want to say, mm, maybe it's not actually intelligent. Maybe it's not. And pushing back to feel comfortable there. There's a it's actually a term that scientists use to describe that, and it's called algorithmic aversion. It's actually a bias that we have towards algorithms, strangely enough. Interesting. Interesting. Well, and and I will say in, in my experience, I see it all the time. The part that's interesting about it, though, is so often we we don't want to let go of even the things we can't stand. Right. And, and you and I were talking about this where we're like, well, if you ask somebody, what is something if you could get rid of it, you would do it tomorrow. And, and people can quickly list that off. Oh, I wouldn't do this. I wouldn't. I hate filling out this workflow or this form. This is such a waste of my time. And you're like, great. What if we could get a computer to do that? And um, immediately people kind of go like, well, no, I'm going to hold on to that. No, no, I wouldn't want a computer to do it. And it, it is a bit of a psychological phenomenon that we know it can do it, but there's this almost identity crisis that we run into of like, well, what would I do if I wasn't doing this? And what would my job look like? So I think that fear factor is definitely something I personally have seen blow up on a number of occasions. Yes. And we're talking about AI today, but if we have time towards the end or at some point today, if you want to talk about it, accidentally, as I was writing the book, I finished these chapters on how AI will affect kind of core HR in the workforce, talent acquisition, performance and talent development, um, learning. I finished all these chapters on the things that technology can do and realized if someone's reading this, they might be a little bit terrified about what's going to happen <laughs> with their job. And I, I, that is not my goal in life to, to worry or concern or anyone, right? If there's, if it's a thing to be worried about, yes, I want to 
make you aware of it. I don't want to finish this feeling like they're threatened. So I went back and did some more research and digging into what happens when this wave of automation passes by, whether it's digital right now or mechanical 100 years ago, any kind of automation, what do the jobs look like they left behind and pulled from these different studies to form this core human skills model. And so that's a, a piece you can finish the book on that's a little more uplifting and hopeful saying, yes, they can do these things. If I gave you if I automated part of your job, what would you do with that extra time? Well, here's the skills to focus on. Here's the areas that you should be doing that algorithms can't easily replicate. So, well, and and it's a it's an important point to make because I think this is one of the things that things do fall down when we start talking about AI automation, digital just in general, right? Digital transformation creates a lot of the same fears. We don't necessarily tell the whole story of what does that future look like, right? We we stop at the well, machines are coming in, they're going to do forty percent of your work. That's scary because it's like, well, forty percent of my work is gone. What do you need me for? Yes, is that part of my pay? Well, <laughs> right, right. But if we can say forty percent of that work that isn't the best use of your time and skills, and we're going to allow you to use those time and skills better and more effective over here, that now creates some semblance of comfort versus versus fear. And I, again, I think there, we've got a ways to go to get people there, but it's, first of all, to me, a mindset shift of instead of holding on to what you really don't even like, being willing to say, hey, I can grow, develop, I can go do new things. I can go do things that maybe I didn't do before, learn new skills. Um, I, but again, I think we've got we've got some time to go, but I think the first step is demystifying a little bit, which is the whole point of of this. Okay, so let's talk about this uh, in terms of applications. Let's jump into it at least a little bit in terms of use cases for HR learning talent. What are some of the ones that, you know, when you started your research into this that immediately came to mind? Because I think a lot of times when people think about it, at least the conversations that I have, a lot of times people are thinking about it, you know, maybe in automation of manufacturing, or they might be thinking in IT, um, things like that, not necessarily human resources they're envisioning a robot somewhere doing something and that's not exactly what we're talking about here so there are lots of applications in the space of human capital management and what we found is the biggest volume of of usage is actually happening on the recruiting side why is yeah. that because the biggest volume of data for a lot of companies is on the recruiting side your your pool of candidates and potential potential employees is much bigger than your pool of actual employees and there's a lot of data that's generated there so if you can use an algorithm to sift through those candidates, to screen them automatically, potentially to assess them and their capabilities. You can use algorithms to do those kinds of things to pick the right person for the job. And what's interesting is we've actually found, we did some research last, the very end of last year, we found that candidates and employers are actually perfectly fine with using an algorithm to do a lot of the early stage stuff in the recruiting process. If you're looking for a job, showing up at a website, interacting with a chat bot, things like that. But the closer you get to saying, here's an offer, we want you to work for our company, the more the candidates and the employers are like, we need to have a human somewhere in there. We need to have a human somewhere in the mix helping to make that decision and not just having it totally automated. Okay. So the hiring process, there's a lot of different pla places in there where we can integrate AI tools to, to solve for that and also to help with the bias problem, which we might get to as well today. On the talent and learning side, um, how about, how about, I'll say the talent side first, and I'll get to learning. Right. So talent, what if you had a way to look at all of the employee survey data that's being generated right now, and you could use natural language processing, which is basically teaching machine to understand language the way that it's spoken and read by human, 
What if you could use that sort of algorithm to look at the comments and the feedback that your employees are giving you as a company, tens of thousands of comments even, and help you figure out what their issues are, what their pain points are, not just broadly, 70% of our people are you know, upset about their benefits or 70% of people like their training, but getting really specific and saying, hey, the, the African-American females in our organization are feeling really distant from the mission of the company. What are we doing to, to push them away and how can we bring them into the fold, make this more you know, equitable for them? So you get some really specific things there that an algorithm can't do. We actually ran an experiment last year to test that out and found that an algorithm was better at humans at identifying the emotions, but also identifying potential gaps and opportunities to solve for those problems for those populations. And on the learning side, and it's, it's a full range from simple things, like we're putting some content in here, it's gonna auto tag that, it's gonna look at the content, look at the text in this, this learning module up, we're uploading, and it can auto tag that based on those, for the skills you're gonna be gathering from that, it can make those inferences, uh, all the way up to, we, there are some, some cool robot coach applications where algorithms are coaching individual employees at a very specific level because the things that Christopher needs are not the same things that I need as a, from a leader perspective, right? I'm terrible at delegating. You might have trouble casting a vision for your team. And so whatever your issue is, it can give you more personalized and tailored coaching via, via chatbot and it can engage with you and connect with you and nudge you in the right direction. So there's some really, really cool applications across the spectrum. Okay. Okay. Well, and we'll dig into a lot of these different things because it is important to understand how this stuff can work because it's, it's one thing to say, yeah, wouldn't it be cool if we could have this understanding the why behind it? Cause mm -hmm. I, I will just say from the learning side, right? That's where I, I spent most of my time. Um, it, it is important to think about the fact that a lot of these things, it's not that we don't try to do them or, or want to do them. It's at the scale that we need to we just can't in many regards. Like I even just think of personalization as an example, right? Let's just take that one. Personalizing content for people based on their needs. In theory, it would be amazing if L&D was large enough to have a personal tutor for every single employee. And we could say, I know Ben Eubanks. And based on my conversations with Ben Eubanks, this is what he really needs. And these are the things he'd like. And, and you know what? I check in with him every other week and I know how he's progressing. And now I'm adapting his needs based on what's actually changing. We can't, there's yeah. just no way to do it. And honestly, even if we had those resources, going back to your point about AI in some regards being better than humans at it, our own personal biases would influence our own decisions or my understanding of interpreting Ben's emotions or his needs. You're adding another layer of bias into it versus just objectively looking at these are the data points that we have. Yes, absolutely. And what's interesting is okay, I, make the, I make the joke like in the land of unlimited budgets, right? We could do anything. But <laughs> when I talk to learning professionals, when I talk to talent leaders, I'm like, if you had to make a list of all the things you have to get done today because it's pressing and priority, the things that are they, they'd love to get to but can't quite get to right, are those things you're talking about. Like, let's make this a more personalized experience for our learners or let's get really focused on measuring the impact of the business or let's actually build a learning strategy that's cohesive and not this little bit here and this little bit there and ad hoc. But those things they want to get to are always down that list. The other things they've got to do up here, we've still got to create these courses because people are demanding them. We've got to deliver this content. We've got to, we get stuck in all that task driven stuff that again is somewhat robotic and can be in some cases automated. And what I'm, what I'm hopeful for, the vision I have for the future is that we can get to those things at the bottom of the list. Those things that do add value that are 
human touch in some cases and create that opportunity for us to really leverage the things that make us human. It's just hard to get to them and hard to scale them because right now we're doing this other stuff. We're turning our wheels. Yeah. Well, and, and with that, you know, I even think of the ability to the insights out of it. Cause I think one of the misnomers with artificial intelligence is that it's going to take away th- and you have no place anymore. Right. But to your example, let's say culture surveys or engagement surveys, we get massive amounts of data from that stuff. Oftentimes we can't even action against it because we just don't have the capacity to look at it. So we look at the dots, we kind of go, well, we moved from 3.4 to 3.7. Let's throw a party engagement is up and let's call it a day because we just don't have the time to sit and scour through this stuff. Now it's not that we just let a machine do its thing and then walk away and, and do the same thing. Instead, we can use that and have it find those insights that we can then say, okay, there's a million things we could do based on the data, but because we don't have the time to look at all this and we just can't, AI can then help raise to the surface. What are the most important? What are the key two or three things that we actually can take action on? Is that fair? I actually talked to a company that has an HR team of 110 people around the world. And we were talking about this concept. He said, we actually ask a couple of open-ended questions in our surveys. Most of it are, you know, multiple choice. You pick your answer so we can do a quick look. We said, we asked some open-ended questions. He said, I don't think anyone's looked at those in the last two years. <laughs> there's, there's too many. You know, they have thousands of people around the world. There's no way for the, them to even make any sense of it. And that was one of the other findings. You mentioned this in the, the, the bias thing and the prediction in the, um, the chatbot context earlier, the coaching context. That's yeah. one of the things we found in that study was if humans are doing the analysis, we're also, oh, you know, I saw that happen twice. Um, I have that issue or I have a bias in that direction. So I'm going to go ahead and say that flag that as a major issue across the organization. And it might be that 1% of the people have that, that problem, but it, because it's bigger in your head, you're more yeah. likely to focus on that. So there's a couple different things, reasons that, that they're better than that. But at the end of the day, that's not, it's not going to go solve that problem. It's not going to go say, Hey, here's the issue you've got to, you've got to figure out. Then some humans got to step in and actually do that. And finding the problem is actually easier than solving the problem in most of the cases. I don't know about you, but it'd be much easier to say, okay, there's a problem. I'm done. I'm going to walk away from this now. <laughs> most of us have to do the hard work of actually figuring out how to attack that, how to solve that, how to make that get to the outcomes we're looking for. And again, that's not, not something an algorithm can do. Well, and I think that's right. That's where, I mean, if you talk to most people, that's where we really enjoy spending our time anyway, right? Because that's what is uniquely human about us. The problem solving, the critical thinking, just the dynamic nature of things. Our time is not, at least me personally, I don't sit and go, you know what I want to do today? Scour rows and rows of Excel sheets looking for insights. Like that does not get me out of bed in the morning. Now, if something can present to me, here's a bunch of insights that we've captured through all this data, now take this. Here's all the problems that we've identified. Now put your critical thought and the team's critical thought into doing something. Come up with a plan and action to solve for that. That's exciting. That to me is exciting. And I think that's where, you know, in every instance where I've seen AI come into the mix, where it wins is when you combine the best of AI with the best of humans and put it together. Yes, absolutely. One of the one of the ways that I emphasize that is there was a study on a couple of years ago by a gentleman named Dennis Stouffer, and he looked at the innovativeness or the creativity of founders of companies. And what he found was those founders who were in the top 10% of their creativity scores had like hockey stick growth for the actual jobs created and the revenue, the profitability of their companies. And I use that as an example to say we could have automated a whole lot of things 
We can automate anything you can imagine, but that doesn't create new value. It's what we do with that time that that automation gives us that can allow us to create value just like those, those people did there. Yeah. Well, it's funny because Vinod brought this up and, and this is one of the things that I completely agree with. We are sitting on literally gold mines of data sets, right? In many of our organizations, we're sitting on just gold mines of this stuff. Um, Kevin Cruz and I were talking, I think it was at the end of last year about, you know, how often do we, we do these, you know, all this stuff we do to develop leaders and we learn all this stuff about it. And then it sits and gathers digital dust, or in some cases, physical dust, because we actually fill out things and it's just sitting there and we don't action against it. And again, to me, that's such a miss because we look at it and we go, we have all this stuff. We're doing absolutely nothing with it. And again, there, you could point fingers and go, well, why not? We have too much. Like what do, what do we, there's no way for us to do anything with that. And that's where I see AI being, massively capable of helping us out. Yes. Yes. Again, it, in the, the joke in the land of unlimited budgets, right? We'd have a team of a hundred people in L and D that could just go and look at all that data. And figure data out scientists. Let's just right. have them everywhere. Yes. Just looking let's, at stuff. let's just one for one for every team. <laughs> one for every team. <laughs> but, but we are not good at that. So there's a, there's a concept in AI in AI science called Moravec's paradox that says the longer humans have done something, the harder it is to reverse engineer it and teach it to algorithms. So, you know, being able to look at if my three-year-old is right here, she could say, you know, that's a, that's a light, that's a, that's a computer, that's a phone. She could look at the things and tell what those are. It's hard to teach an algorithm to do, to understand those things. Computer vision is a really tough and heavy, heavy lift kind of AI. On the flip side though, if there was a statistical calculation here, my three-year-old wouldn't have a chance and I wouldn't have a better chance than her probably at answering you know, some calculus on the screen. But because it's narrowly defined, there are parameters, there's a right and a wrong answer. An algorithm could do that really quickly and easily. And so there is evidence that says we should not try to do those things that they are well suited for because they'll do them better than we ever can. And we might just muddy it up. Yeah. At the same time, we shouldn't try to bring over algorithms into those things that are human touch because there are some examples of that that have happened in, in the workplace that are that are not very fun yeah. and uh, don't lead to good outcomes. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that one. Uh, that's actually where I was going to go next. But before okay. we do, based on what you said, you know, one of the things that I think there's opportunity for us in HR and learning, I, I you see this a lot, is to your point of, right, AI is really good at certain things. People are really good at other things. And we need to understand what those things are. But to do that and then apply that well, we actually have to understand the work and what's going on in the organization. And a lot of times I see that as a big gap where we just go, well, this group does that. And you're like, but what, what is that? Like, what does that look like? We actually have to deconstruct the work to be able to say, well, what could be automated? What does make sense to be automated and what should never be automated? And that's, that's an investment that I think AI can help with because we have a lot of these data sets to help break that stuff down. But a lot of times when I talk to organizations, that's still a gap, right? They don't truly know what the work being done is to be able to really adequately. And to me, that's where things can go south. Cause you can be like, here, we'll just throw AI at it. Like throw AI at it. You should know what it is before you just start throwing AI at it. I, I talked to a, a major organization this last year, their head of talent, and he told me that someone in the business, their, actually their chief digital officer, came to him and said, hey, our competitor was in the news today. They're using this AI system for their hiring process. We need to get some AI. I quote, get some AI. And he said, 
get some AI, huh? Like, can you tell me exactly what outcomes we're trying to get to? What are we trying yeah. to actually solve for? What are the things do you want me to have at the end of this process? And he, he listed those out and he went away and came back and said, hey, actually we can solve that without getting any AI, buying any <laughs> technology. We need a half a head count on our team and we can do those things you're looking to do. And you're like, oh, okay, great. Cost a lot less, it was actually easier and they actually have more of a human touch because they're not automating something. But it's easy to get caught up in that. Well, everybody else is, they've got AI. Why don't we have AI? And it's not about that. I actually tell buyers when you're at a big tech conference and you're like, you know, walking around and people are like, hey, we have AI this and that. Just like back away and say, hold on, what problems are you solving? Because yeah. I need to know if it solves the real problems that I have before you start talking to me about whether it's AI or not. That shouldn't matter in the first conversation. Well, and that, that outcome focus is to me, critical, whether we're talking about AI, anything digital transformation. I mean, I see that as one of the most critical areas that people fall flat is they're, they're chasing the tech instead of saying, what are we trying to do first? And then let's figure out what can help us do that. Right. And if you do that, first of all, one, it makes this space a whole lot less confusing because instead of just saying we need to your example, we need to get some AI. <laughs> I mean, that is that is huge. You don't even know where to start. What to, what yes. questions to start asking? What things to look at? What to dig into? Versus if you say we need to in learning, right? We need to personalize learning for employees. Okay, that's something that I can say. All right, what does that mean? Let's define what personalization looks like. Now I can actually go look for something that can help us do a better job. Where are we not doing it well? Where are we doing it well? Um, and it gives that kind of guidance. When we just say we need AI in learning and development. I, I can't, I can't really do much with that. Yes. Yeah. Can't relate to that as a problem solver. Can't relate to that. Like that. I don't even know where to go next. I mean, we could, okay, we've got a chat bot on our website. So you can ask it about what learning content is in the LMS. Okay. We'll <laughs> check that box. Is even that a though, problem? <laughs> I don't know, but I'm saying, even though it doesn't solve an actual problem, it doesn't actually meet a need of anybody. It's like, okay, we've checked that box. We can move on without without actually making better use of the data you have yeah. or or trying to actually create a better experience or get to actual, I don't know, outcomes we're trying to get to from a learning context. Like that's the things that we should be looking at. Yeah. Well, what's funny, a comment came up from Ritesh here and, and we were talking about like, if we had all the resources in the world, we'll just hire all the data scientists. And he's right, right? There are not <laughs> enough data scientists on the planet. We could hire yes. them all and we still couldn't take action on all the data we have. I don't remember where I read it, but I mean, the amount of data we're generating on a daily basis, even just on an individual level, mm -hmm. is astronomical. So I think that's one of those things where sometimes, you know, there is kind of this, I'll liken it to when COVID hit and there was a little bit of a mentality of like, well, we'll do this digital thing until we go back. And I think sometimes there can be a mindset with the AI thing like, well, we'll use AI until we have the resources or the people to do it. And the reality is it's like, well, first of all, one, that day is never going to come. And two, why would you? It's not the best use of time and resources. Even if you could afford to hire all the data scientists in the world, it, it doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I want to transition this though, because we've talked about all the, the, the good stuff. It can be great and it can, but there's examples where this has gone terribly terribly, terribly wrong, right? And and things have gone south. So let's talk a little bit about that because there is risk, um, you know, associated with AI, whether it's, yes, we talked about AI can help reduce bias. It can also vastly increase it if you're not careful. Yeah. 
where does where do some of these things go south and the research you've done where does it where does the trail go train go off the tracks so i'll give you a couple different examples uh, we'll start with one in recruiting the recruiting space so a couple of years ago amazon came out publicly and said hey we tried to build an algorithm inside the business that would look at all of our current high-performing engineers and help us make selections for our next software hires and so they ran the algorithm and it said okay hire all these men like, oh, well, you know, we must have you know, hired a bunch of men in the past. We trained the algorithm using that data set. They've done a bunch of hiring and promotion and giving good reviews to men. So men were highly rated in the organization compared to women. So they taught the algorithm to look at women and say, no, no, no. She's got a female name. She's got something on her resume that indicates she's female. And so we need to downgrade her because she's not as good, even though there's obviously there's no difference. If a highly qualified engineer doesn't matter, but they had trained it because they had hired a bunch of men and used that as the data set to, to deliver that and to, to create that algorithm. So they tried this for a while and they've got some smart people on Amazon. They ultimately shut it down because they couldn't figure out how to make the algorithm stop being biased against females, even after they had, had done some of their testing. You know, let's take the names off. Let's make it just initials. So we don't know if it's, you know, Samantha or, or uh, Sam. It doesn't matter. So that's an example. One of the other stories that I'd love to point out is um, there's a study done at Uber, actually, and they're, they're not employees or contractors, but one of the use cases people talk about is using, using AI for compensation sort of recommendations. And they actually have an algorithm that's gender blind that assigns shifts, that assigns pay rates to certain routes that drivers can take. And they did an experiment to figure out what the pay rates are for men and women, and actually men earn more than women do driving for Uber even though the, the algorithm doesn't know if you're a man or woman. And so they started digging into what those, those causes are. And there were a couple different ones. Number one, men drive a little faster so they can do more, which it's hard to solve for that one. The second reason though, is men were picking up shifts in during times where women were typically caring for children. So it's, it's, yeah. it's uh, harming them that way. And the third way, the third reason is there is a time when you're driving for one of those platforms where you realize the tricks, right? You're somewhere along your experience. You're like, wait a minute. If I go to this neighborhood, I can get, a, I can also get a fare back or this place is where the okay. best tips are. The Uber hacks. Yes. You start to figure out those things out. And once you do that, your income takes off. Women quit right before they get to that point on average more than men do. So they haven't been driving long enough to pick up all those tips and tricks to increase their income. So like in spite of an algorithm that doesn't care if you're a man or woman, women still earned less. And so there are ways that you could, you could solve for that. They, they probably don't want to because they would, they'd rather people, you know, not tell you that this is a bad place to go because you'll never get a ride back. Like that's not good for the business model, but there are ways that's an example of how we need a human in the mix if we're going to think about using AI for helping with compensation decisions, things like that, because it might make recommendations that are counter or contrary, that are not good for certain groups because of patterns it's seeing in the data. And it's it's not not fair to those people, obviously. Yeah. Well, and it's it's interesting. You great examples, I think, you know, and Vinod Vinod chimed in and said, right, this is why the human in the loop thing needs to be there. Because yes. the reality is, you know, and I've heard people say this, oh, the algorithms are biased. It's like the algorithms themselves are simply making decisions based on the data that they have. Yes. So if there's bias there, it's because of bias in the data. It's not, you know, there's not this misogynistic AI algorithm. I mean, I guess I'm going to counter that a little bit. I'm going to okay, no, go for it. You're the expert. So, well, um, IBM actually had, I had an interview with their, one of their, I can't remember her title. Her. She's the chief distinguished engineer or something like that. It was some amazing title. She's incredibly brilliant. And we talked about 
how algorithms can become biased before they're ever even released into the wild. And one of the ways that happens is if we have a team of, you know, 20 something white males that are designing this algorithm, it may not realize that it's being biased against certain populations. They're all looking at it saying, this is not, yeah, this works. This works. It's great. It's, it's fine. And they don't have that different perspective to say, wait a minute, we're not considering this thing that a, a woman would think about, or this thing that a minority would think about. And they're, they're missing those, those lenses. And so they can build something that is biased from the outset. So I, when I talk about bias and algorithms, people, people automatically assume like it's, you know, it's going to hurt us. There's two different ways. It's either trained, it's unbiased and it becomes biased by the, how we're using it, you know, um, or it is biased from the outset and it's going to be giving us bad recommendations from the very first moment, just because it was built with a group that was not diverse and didn't consider all the yeah. potential uh, outcomes there. So there's two, two potential failure points. And I think this is something that's important for people to understand, because this is when you start digging into AI, the questions you need to be asking to understand this stuff. So you don't get blindsided by it later. So Bingo. potentially right? There is potential for the bias to be built in. And I think this goes back to building a diverse and equitable workforce is you don't want a team of, you know, people designing this to all look, think, and be the same Homogenous. Yeah. because you're going to end up with bias out of the gate. The other potential breakdown point though, is you throw it at bias data, you're going to end up with bias results. And again, we could get into all the tech of how you can balance the algorithm to kind of counter the bias. But again, you have to know that risk and it goes back to the point of keeping a human in the loop. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. okay. So what, what other kind of, you know, a, a bunch of, I'm curious what you're seeing from a growth standpoint or not growth, but how is this evolving? Cause one of the jokes we made before we went live on this was the fact that a long time ago, if you had said, what if I could make a machine that could do basic mathematic calculations and all you had to do was hit a button. People would have thought you were nuts, right? They would have said, there's no way, you know, that's impossible. Now we snicker because, right. You've like, heard of a calculator, I think, right? You've heard of a calculator. In fact, it's like some of the most basic <laughs> computational stuff that we have. Now we're talking about things like, well, personalization, hiring. I mean, all these things, how is that continuing to evolve? One of the things that's been really exciting to see is as we're, we're getting bigger, bigger data sets. You can do more things. And for those companies that have their systems connected where all the data is in one place, you can actually make better recommendations because you can see the full picture. If you can see this narrow slice, you can only make recommendations based on that narrow slice that you see. So if we have this bigger picture, we can, we can make some better and more predictive suggestions. Um, for example, one of the fun areas I've been watching closely in the last year or so is career path and career planning, helping people figure out what's the next step for them, how do they get there, making recommendations based on that. So if Christopher's like, you know, next up I want to be the, you know, the CMO, whatever else. I want to be this chief marketing officer. What do I, what gaps do I have? Help me figure out what the deltas are in my skills between where I am, where I want to go make recommendations for, for content that I need to take to get me to fill those gaps, I'm making recommendations based on the content that other people that are successful in that role are also taking. So I can you know brush up on that and be a high performer. So there's a lot of fun areas that I'm watching, but that's one that kind of brings together things from performance, things from learning, things from other areas of talent to help paint a better picture. The, the phrase that I use to describe that is like a self-developing workforce. Yeah. People want, people want to be good at what they do. I don't know anyone that wakes up in the morning like, I, I, I want to be awful today. at my job. I hope I'm so bad that I at my job. Like, no, no one gets up thinking that. 
But sometimes the way it's set up, sometimes there's, there's things that, that work against them, make it harder for them to be great at it. And if we give them the tools, make that available, make it to where the systems are actually supporting the goals that they have, I think there's some really amazing opportunities ahead for us to get people into those things that they really want to do and to enable them to be the, the very best at those. Um, actually, a company I talked to a couple of years ago researching for the book that said, we can look at your recruiting team, for example, and see what they're doing because all the, the, the work they're doing on the recruiting function is happening inside the system. They can see who the most effective recruiters are and say, hey, wait a minute, they're doing these three or four things that are different than the rest of the group. Yep. And so we're going to start making recommendations to the other people like, hey, Christopher follows up within 48 hours. It's been, you know, 40 hours since you, this person applied. Maybe you should ping them just to let them know you got their application and starts to make recommendations for people whose performance is down here to get them up to performing at the same level as your best people. And like, that's incredible. Think about what if everybody on your team performed as well as that the best person? Yeah. Well, and, and with that, right, so you, we're seeing the talent marketplaces are, are booming now, right? That's that's the big trend. And to me, this is where you start matching and pairing this stuff. We start to get more skills data on people. We start to get more career data on people. Again, it's lots of data that potentially without AI, we don't have the power to do anything with. We just have loads and loads of data that are telling us nothing actionable. And I think that's where it is. But you know, I think this will be an interesting journey as we go on, because the one thing, and Trish brought this up, um, you know, when we go back and we look at, at the bias behind this, right? And I keep bringing it back to this, because I think this is one of the, the risks, is this is all good stuff, right? We're capturing all this data, and it's it's exposing some of the skeletons that we've had in the closet, whether we've inherently chosen not to look at them, or we've, we've kind of didn't realize it. We didn't realize what was going on. And so now these things are starting to bubble up and we're being faced with some of this stuff and it has the potential to help us change it for the better, but we have to take action on that, right? Cause we can choose to ignore this stuff. And I've seen that happen where you go, well, somebody said it earlier, right? We have these data sets, we see these insights and we go, I don't like that. So let's go find some data that tells us a different story. And I think sometimes for this to work well, we have to be willing to take that hard look in the mirror and say, we haven't been doing it great. We haven't been doing it perfectly. And we can use this to help us do it better and, and move to a better future. Yes, absolutely. Totally okay. with you on that. And there's and there's a lot of opportunity to do that. Um, one of the challenges that I have is there are nearly the list of cognitive biases that humans have. The list is nearly 200. So we have lots of ways that we can screw things up. Um, the th <laughs> thinking all the of the kids that I'm raising right now, and like how I know, I know. Oh, sorry, that got really weighty for a second. Um, we have the, all these biases though, that could affect how we make decisions and what we do every single day. The hard part about this bigger conversation that's we're not going to solve it today, but where do we put a human in the process so that we can emphasize the things that make them human and to bring that value without biasing the outcome, because in the hiring process, for example, I told you earlier that we're comfortable having AI handle it all the way down to we're not. We want a human to do that, but we have to cross some thresholds because if we have a human at the earliest part, they may be, un they are, everyone has an unconscious bias and they might be making a decision against someone else, not because they wanted to, not because they meant to, just because, oh, you know, hey, they went to the same you know high school that I did. Great, let's yeah. talk to them. And that's not malicious or mean, but it, it happens and so having AI handle those things so that a human doesn't 
probably good. But the closer we get to that, that point where we want to offer someone something or that we're going to develop someone for a, a new leadership role, lots of different use cases, we have to figure out the exact point where we need to let algorithms quit and let humans start without basically wrecking everything. So, yeah. yeah. Well, so the the part that I'm curious about your take on this in and to kind of frame this up, right? This is part of why I'm such a big advocate for us to move to digital, right? Because the problem when we're not in digital is we, we, we're not capturing a lot of this data. Or if we are, it's it's in formats we can't do anything with. Yes. So the more digital we are with things, the more data we have that we can then take action on. To me, it's even, you look at immersive tech, right? Versus, oh, you send somebody to a classroom, maybe they go through something. Great, but we don't really have any insights into anything because it happened in an environment where we can't actually capture any data. We, we go into an emergency. Like all these post-it notes on my desk? Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? All this stuff that's like, well, I can't do anything with that, right? Because I can't action against that. In the digital space, we can. Now, that said, how do we balance it? And I'm going to use the talent acquisition one. And I think the big thing with this is how do we prepare the general populace for this? Because one example I think of is ATSs, right? That that was kind of an early mode to say, hey, how do we screen just the volume of candidates that that we can cut through kind of the weeds and, and not have to deal with this because we can't have people talking to every single person that applies. Mm -hmm. The problem is people didn't really know how an ATS worked on the general population. So they didn't really know what they were even putting a resume into and that they may be just putting something into the machine that literally just got spit out, even if they were the perfect candidate. So when you look at some of this AI stuff, what are some ways that you think we can help the general population understand that, hey, we're moving to this new world. This new world looks like this. This is how you can play in this new game in a way that doesn't inadvertently cut you out by accident because you didn't realize the set of rules you were playing with. So we actually did some research on this a few years ago because yeah. I was curious. I heard a case study from Unilever. They use automated tools to do the first couple stages of their college hiring process. Yeah. If you've never done college hiring, for everybody listening in, here's what it's like. It's like all other recruiting except for every candidate is virtually the same. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a degree and no experience. Please hire me. That's the general college recruiting yeah. you know, focus. So they wanted a way to filter through those candidates and figure out who the best ones. So they use an automated video interview. They use an automated assessment and both of those are, are done you know, in tandem. And based on your performance on that, then you may get a conversation with an actual recruiter. But prior to that, you have no human contact with a company. And what they found was actually, they had a couple benefits to that. Number one, 82% of the people that went through the process said it was a good experience, even though they didn't talk to a human, which is telling. And I'll tell you why in a minute. The other thing though they found is because they're more efficient, they were able to reach other more diverse schools because before, again, they were bound by what you and I talked about, that manual, we have, only have so many people to, to go around. So they went to a certain number of schools and were not able to target other schools for more diverse candidates. So because they're more effective and more efficient, they could reach out and increase the diversity of the candidates they were reaching, which is, which is fun. So I was curious about that 82% figure though. Like why would eight out of 10 people be happy with this process, even though they didn't ever interact with a person. And so we did some research, talked to some candidates, did surveyed um, a big candidate population. And what we found was they felt satisfied with the hiring process if they got a chance to show what they could do. And in this, this example, they got that assessment. They got a chance to, to do a video interview that was automated. They got to show what their capabilities were and what their, their strengths were. 
and they felt the company made the judgment based on that versus making a judgment just on a resume, like you said a minute ago, that ATS, yep. like that, that doesn't tell you who I am, what I am. Like if you read my resume, you wouldn't expect what you're what you're getting here today from me or from you, because we're probably. And so that's that's you, saying you have a really bad resume, Ben. <laughs> you know what? Speaking of dust, you know, physical dust. <laughs> That's that's a great example that that illustrates the issues with how things were, the opportunities for how things are in some cases and how they'll continue to be. And they're, I mean, those candidates that are going through that process, they see, yes, I'm not talking to a human, but I am able to show what what I've got. I'm able to show this and at least they're judging me on my best and not based on how how many keywords I stuffed into a, a PDF document. Yeah. Well, and, and Trish Trish mentioned this, like a bunch of other people have brought this up about how the efficiency we've gained from this actually, if done right, has the potential to help things get better because to your point, right? Part of the reason recruiting is challenging, right? It's it's very time intensive. So if we can free up that time, going back to the fear factor of, well, if I'm not looking at resumes and scouring resumes, what will I be doing? Well, we can capture more data points through different things versus the singular way we've had to do it because that's all we had the time and resources to do, giving us a more holistic picture of what there is. And with AI, we then have the horsepower to actually look at that data and capture something meaningful while still having the person in the loop to say, yes, I need to make a decision, but I'm making a more balanced decision based on multiple data points because we have the scale and speed to do it. Okay. There's there's so many good things there, and again that that kind of ties back into that that piece I mentioned earlier, the study that was done, Dennis uh, Stouffer. Like I use that to illustrate that we can automate all these things, but it, if I just automate a part of your work and do nothing else to change the things you're doing, it's Parkinson's law, right? The the task you have will fill the time you have allotted for it, and so your your other tasks will just get bigger to fill that space in. If I don't intentionally say okay, now that you've got five extra hours in your week, here's how we're going to use those for the highest leverage value out of your time and being specific about those things. That's, it's hard to have that conversation before you see the efficiencies generated, but it's one of those things that if you want to be effective long-term, you want to be able to, to really target the right things. You've got to think about that before, before the, the free time ever happens or it gets gobbled up pretty quickly. Yeah. I, I'm trying to remember what book that's from, right? The big rocks and the pebbles, the gravel, right? And that's, that's we've all seen that you don't if your calendar is not full and you have a blank somebody will fill it with something yes. and it goes back to the intentionality i think that's an important message for leaders as they're moving into this space as technology can free up time can create efficiencies to be thinking ahead of that don't wait for it to happen and then be like oh boy what do we do now be thinking ahead of well what are the things that we can be doing how could we be spending our time differently let's reimagine the possibilities of what could we do if we had more time? So as that comes, you're proactive on it instead of reactive and trying to figure that out. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Any other interesting trends or use cases that you've seen that you went, I did not expect that. I was not expecting people to apply artificial intelligence in this way. Goodness gracious. Um, let's talk about the one topic everybody loves the most. How okay. about like, benefits? benefits. So there are a couple different ways that they, that's, that we can do things in that space. Um, there's some good stuff happening with chatbots to, to converse with people, because again, not every person that works for your company understands the benefits you offer. I'd hazard a guess that most of You're them don't understand me. all the benefits that you have to offer. 
And having a bot that interacts with them and engages with them and says, oh, well, here's how that works. And here's the benefit to you. Really specific and tailored and personalized to that person. It knows their family. It knows their dependents. It knows what plan they're on, what sort of benefits they've used in the previous year. If it can see that kind of data, it can make really tailored recommendations for them on what to do, how to manage their, their own health and their own wellness. I think there's some really interesting things there for sure. One of the other areas of opportunity, though, as well, is I've seen, I'm talking to a company actually next week that looks at data across hundreds and hundreds of companies and how they're using these different services from a benefits perspective and can really make specific suggestions on how to get the most bang for your buck as you're building benefit plans for people and making sure you're you're using all the resources that are available. So those are not exciting unless you're in benefits, but those are opportunities that can enable you. If we saved 40% of our benefits costs because we made all these better decisions, suddenly that starts to impact the rest of the business and how that's a, that's a big line item for most companies. So okay. I, nobody's excited probably thinking about benefits, but at the same time, it's one of those things no one we don't get up in the morning. Like, I can't wait to go out there and search through 400 different you know, line items in the spreadsheet to figure out which one is the most valuable. That's probably more than 400, you know, for most companies. So anyway, there's okay. some, there's some good stuff there. It's a good opportunities again to use, use AI to help us highlight opportunities and then use our human intuition, creativity to really target the right next action. The, well, the, the one you just mentioned right there, and this to me is one I see a lot of opportunity in for, you know, learning performance enablement, whatever buzzword you want to call our function is around performance support, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there are so many times we have so much information in our organizations that it's tough as an end user to figure out what to do with it. And a lot of times we don't need it all the time, right? We don't need it all the time. So you think of the benefits thing. I don't honestly look at my benefits that often. If at, if at all, actually, my wife's the one that looks at all of it. But anyway, right? The truth comes out. Here we are. Exactly, truth comes out. Christopher doesn't look at his benefits, but she's the one that does. But even her, she looks at it when she needs something or something comes up. And so to try and staff, you know, support for that for the employees based on this, like I have no idea when people are going to have. Things. I mean, we can kind of predict, but not really, and things like that. So to do that, and when a large percentage of the questions that come in are as basic as what is the copay on this, you don't need a person to answer those kind of basic questions. And to me, that real-time performance support, I see it in system implementations. I do it a lot with system implementations where it's like, when people need to know, how do I put this in here? I don't need a person. You don't need to call IT to do that kind of stuff. And in fact, you talk to the IT people, they hate those calls, <laughs> right? Because it's like, uh, uh, oh, this is not the best use of my time to walk you through where that is. So I think, you know, there's massive, massive benefits in that arena as well. The one thing that this was leading me to, though, is I feel like one of the big hurdles that I see where organizations are trying to make this, and I'm curious if you've seen organizations, how they've bridged this, is there's fear on, on the kind of decision maker side, right? You, you look at the fear we're dealing with on our side of people going, well, what about my job and what's going to happen with this? You look at the end user and there does seem to be a growing fear of, well, what is my company doing with this data, right? What, you're telling me AI is going to do all this stuff. That's, that's a little bit scary to me. How are organizations helping their employee base say, we, we need you to understand that what we're doing is for your benefit. We're not capturing all this data to, to punish you. We're doing it to make your life easier. 
Yes, we're secretly plotting against you. We're secretly and plotting against because that right that that impression exists. Yes. Um, so one of the things that I would say there is if you are going to ask for more data, you can't just ask for that and hope that they're going to say yes. People are more privacy conscious now, even with TikTok and all the other crazy stuff people do, <laughs> which is a security nightmare. Um, people are more privacy conscious now than they ever were in the past, I would say, because they realize just how quickly your data can, can be used maliciously or by, by people you didn't authorize to use it. And so I think part of that is, hey, Christopher, we're going to ask you for these things you didn't tell us before. Here's how we're going to help you. Here's what we're going to give you back. Here's the value we're going to return to you. And look, it's more. The perceived value of what we're giving you back is more than whatever minimal value, the future, the current value of the, the data you're going to give us. So one example of that, I talked to a company in the LXP space recently, and they said during the onboarding process for a brand new learner, one of the things you do is you check off a couple of boxes on things that you want to learn. These are things I'm curious about. And you're giving them a piece of data about you right there. But what they found is people consume about 60% more content after doing that because they're tailoring and personalizing recommendations to you. And so if you can help them see the benefit of that without it being some vague future benefit that they're not sure they can ever realize, make sure there's a clear line of sight between I'm giving you this in exchange for that. That's going to lead to better outcomes and better opportunities to use that. I know data privacy, again, I expect it to become a bigger issue, especially as more algorithms are making recommendations because I've, I've heard that there could be some, 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 uh, some challenges there. One of the things I wrote about in the book is if an algorithm makes a recommendation about you that is a negative outcome and you don't get that thing you're trying to get, whether it's a, a loan or a job or something else, then that company that made that decision is obligated to tell you, here's the things the algorithm used to factor in so that it decided not to do that for you so that there's going to be some more transparency there. Well, that digs into the whole black box thing, which could open up a whole nother. <laughs> For hour two of learning tech talks. For hour two of learning tech talks, we're going to go into the black box of AI. Um, so yeah, no, we won't go into that. But yeah, I think, you know, one of the things you hit on and, and some of the comments that are that are pulling this up is, is two. One, right, it's the story behind this and helping people understand what this is and what's being done with that data. And, you know, the thing I think that uh, I've, I've had to have a number of conversations on is, sometimes there's this tendency to just say, let's capture every piece of data that we can on people and, and do that. And I, I think sometimes that opens unnecessary risk versus let's capture data that we know can be used and how it's going to be used so that we can tell that story. And we don't open ourselves to risk of, well, we have a bunch of things that we captured. We don't, you know, we don't know what that is. And I think, you know, one of the points that Trish brought up is there are opportunities. Where is that? Where's that comment? Cause she said it. You know, yeah, right here, there's a ton of different simple data collection methods we can use. The one you mentioned, right, with the LXP, asking some just basic questions, right? It's not necessarily doing anything that could be weaponized against a person or things like that, right? It's just basic data points that we can capture that can start to bring some more data in to help inform this stuff and give us a better picture, a more personalized picture without asking people to, to turn over too much that they start you know, feeling uncomfortable with what's happening. Yeah, while we're at it, can I have your credit card number, Christopher? Would that be okay? <laughs> yeah, while we're on the show, here, yes. let me give you my social, my credit cards, <laughs> bank accounts. <laughs> I'll say there's, that was one of the things I, 
we didn't talk about today, but explicit versus implicit. You know, if I'm telling the algorithm, here's things I like, that's explicit data. That's explicit things. It can, it knows because I've told it. Other things are implicit, where if I have a job title, it might infer certain skills that I have. If it says my job title is, you know, uh, analyst, it's like, okay, maybe they know something about data, data gathering and how to, how to analyze data. Maybe they know something about writing up and presenting a business case. And so there's a couple different kinds of data too there that we don't always have to ask them outright for it. But if you're going to collect it, you need to have a plan for how you're going to use it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, this has been fun. Like I said, we probably could go on a, a several hour marathon on this topic, but I think people have to get back to back to their day jobs because uh, AI is not doing 40% of it that they can spend that 40% watching learning tech talks. So as always, Ben, <laughs> lots of great comments. Hopefully everybody watching uh, got something out of this. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Um, really enjoyed you being here. And, and we'll definitely have to have a follow up on this one, especially as things continue to evolve in version 2.0 of where is AI going comes out the new version of your book, right? That you're yeah, working just, on. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. I, I'm excited about it. We're talking, talking about that right now. Okay. Sounds good. Well, thanks for being here. Thanks everybody for watching. Have a fantastic weekend uh, and a great rest of your Friday. We'll see you next week.